Let us bow our heads and please join me for the prayer of illumination. Spirit of the living God, free our minds from error. Teach our hearts the living words of Jesus and inspire our lips to share the good news in the name of the blessed Holy Trinity. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. If you want to follow along, it's on page 1117 in our Pew Bibles. Revelation 1, 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. We found in your Pew Bible on page 989. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house were, where the disciples were had, had met was locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw that it was the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace 
be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may also have life in his name. Amen. So today in church tradition is what is called Low Sunday. It is an ancient feast day of the Catholic Church that would have been the first Sunday after the newly baptized would have laid aside their ceremonial robes and begun their new spiritual life as infants in the church. The low comes from it being the Sunday after Easter, meaning that from Easter, everything else is kind of downhill. It's lower than Easter Sunday. Now, Low Sunday was important to the ancient church because, as I said, this would be the first Sunday those newly baptized, the newest members, would attend church as full and faithful members. The ancient church now, remember, was baptizing adults, and the confirmation process was lengthy and in-depth. It took a year at least, and it would have been customary and still is in many places to be baptized then after that process on Easter. So the church celebrates that Sunday with its feast day of Low Sunday. Now also in the ancient church, the scripture for today would have been 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. 1 Peter says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, if you take 1 Peter and translate it into Latin, the beginning of that sentence starts with this, something that will sound familiar to you, I would think, quasimodo. Quasimodo is the first uh, Latin translation of, of 1 Peter. And yes, it, it is sometimes in the world called Quasimodo Sunday. Now, those of you that have read and seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, this Sunday is the Sunday that an abandoned baby was discovered on the steps of that great cathedral, and of course, that baby's name is Quasimodo. Now, in the modern era, Low Sunday has come to mean something entirely different. In many churches across North America, the Sunday after Easter is usually the lowest attended service of the year. So we can all pack up and go home. We've done our part, right? We showed up. Now, some people in the church business call this Associate Pastor Sunday. (laughs) Since this is the Sunday that the senior pastor skips town and the associates jockey for the pulpit. But of course, that's not what would happen here. Now, I think most of us can understand that we do spend a tremendous amount of time both in our families and in the church getting ready for Easter and really having a big celebration. And I mean, this was my first Easter here 
uh, at Mount Pleasant, and it was quite an Easter. I mean, the Easter story in and of itself is fantastic, and, and Dr. Bynum gave us a great sermon. There was wonderful music, and uh, literally the sanctuary and the fellowship hall were just busting with people uh, throughout all the services. But here we are today. I don't, the people worshiping in the fellowship hall right now are supposed to be there in the net service. There's not any overflow. There's not any great crowd. It's low Sunday. Where did they all go? Maybe the reality of what Easter is really about is just kind of too tough for us or the world to even understand. Now, there's a quote by a German theologian named Wolfhart Pannenberg that usually makes the rounds this time of year. Pannenberg said that the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is so strong that no one would question it except for two things. First, it is truly a very usual, unusual event. And second, if you believe that it happened, you have to change the way you lived. If you believe that it happened, you have to believe, you have to change the way you believe and you live. Now, we don't do change well. In fact, I think I'm on firm ground when I say that really the only true change that we experience in our lives is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our scripture reading today is evidence of that change. You can almost sense the emotion, the emotional roller coaster that the disciples have been through, that deep despair of denying who Jesus was at his trial and his death. And then that mountaintop high that they reached when word came to them that he might still be alive. And now to low again, locked in a hidden room, hiding from people that might try to kill them. The reality of living the resurrected life is upon them. Maybe that's why Jesus' first words to this somber group behind these locked doors is peace. Peace be with you. And then a week later, the same scenario, this time with the missing Thomas, peace be with you, is how Jesus greets them. But something happened in that room on the lowest of low days when every disciple is questioning their actions toward Jesus. Something changed. Something turned. From that closed room burst forth a faith a religion, a movement that set the world on fire with the love of Christ. In an Easter sermon entitled, Like Him We Rise, the Reverend William Sloan Coffin's central point to his Easter message was this, the victory of seemingly powerless love over loveless power. Love is stronger than death. Love is stronger than death. Jesus came with a world-shattering message of love that didn't die on that cross. In that locked-up room of lowliness, Jesus' disciples became ten times the people they were before. Peter, who had denied Jesus three times at the end of Jesus' life, goes on to become the rock on which the church is built, a religious institution which will come to teach clearly that God is love. Other apostles who were not on the road to Emmaus, but on a road away from Jerusalem and away from Jesus' crucifixion, 
were turned around and filled with the Spirit by the risen Christ's appearance to them. And they followed his instructions to go out and make disciples of all nations. All of Jesus' disciples would be transformed from a bumbling group of doubters to world-traveling evangelists. They would go from denying that they even knew Jesus to be followers willing to give up their very lives for him. And most of them would die a martyr's death. For one reason, and one reason only, they would die because they would not renounce their faith in Jesus, something they did quite regularly when Jesus was alive. So how did the resurrection turn these men around? Remember Pannenberg's quote, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. So I'd like to try and bring those two thoughts together this morning, the thought of the resurrected life and how it could or should change us. On this low Sunday as Christ followers, how might we be transformed into a resurrected life? First, I think we need to kind of understand the cultural shifts that are going on around us, especially when it comes to religion in North America. Since 1972, the University of Chicago has been conducting a yearly survey on American religion. The GSS, as it's called, the General Social Survey, is second only to the United States Census as a tool for researchers, government policy writers, and academics in studying the changing landscape of North American religion. In 2018, their survey revealed some startling statistics. For the first time in its 46 years of existence, the survey showed that people that identified themselves as no religious affiliation was now the largest religious group in North America. They beat out the Catholics and the evangelicals. In 2018, the people who identified themselves as nuns, that's what social scientists call these people, not nuns, N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, meaning no religious affiliation, the nuns, the nuns have doubled the number of mainline Protestants. That would be us. Now, the amazing statistic I found in there was that the nuns had only been around 5% of the population in 1972, but today they are 23.1% of the population. Mainline Protestants have fallen from 28% in 1972 to 11% of the population in 2018. Now we could talk for weeks on end really about the who, what, why, and how of all those statistics and what they really say about our society. But there's another survey that I found and, and read about that was put out by the Barna Group and I think it gives us some insight into those numbers. They tried to answer this question, why the church in North America, as it is presently structured, is struggling to attract the next generation. And in their survey, they targeted people that were born from 1980 to 2000 and people that claimed that they were not regular church attenders. They asked them what their thoughts were about organized religion, about church, and what their experience had been if they had had some experience with it. And I have for us today the top five answers of why church wasn't a part of their lives anymore. And maybe in these five reasons, we can find some answers for our purposes in living the resurrected life. The first thing they said was that organized religion was irrelevant, that the leaders were hypocritical, 
and that leaders have in many instances displayed moral failure. Now I want to explain for a minute their definition of leader. They weren't just talking about people in robes and stoles. They were talking about anyone in the church that presented himself as a leader, a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, an elder, uh, a mission leader, anyone that identified themselves uh, in a position of leadership in the church. And I know that's really three reasons in one, uh, but the Barna Group studied that together. And if you've ever had a conversation with anyone uh, about this topic, and I've certainly had these conversations uh, many, many times over and over again, and that's kind of exactly what you hear. Something to the effect of, well, the church is irrelevant, and why would anyone then want to spend time with it if, if it's irrelevant? And it's full of hypocrisy. And just look at many of the issues that the leaders of the church have. We get that right. We understand that. We've maybe experienced it ourselves. We've all been let down by someone else's human sin. We've also failed ourselves. We've also fallen in to issues of our own making. So what's the answer? Well, just because some people are like that, some people are hypocritical and some people have outwardly present sin in their lives doesn't mean we have to be like that. It's more than possible for us to create a culture of integrity and grace. Jesus said that it would be our fruit that people would recognize as his disciples. That's how we will be recognized by other people that we are followers of Christ by the fruit that we bear. So my friends, if we live a life of integrity with each other and with those outside our church, we will become a place of welcome and not a place of judgment or irrelevance. The second thing this group said in their survey was that God was missing from the church. As churches have begun to compete for bodies in the pews, Many churches have turned to entertainment and turned away from the reality of the cross. They have built a foundation on their own abilities to deliver entertaining, spiritless homilies instead of gospel-filled, Christ-centered experiences. In an effort not to offend anyone, we have withdrawn from the world as Christians and we've watered down our own personal experiences with the risen Christ. The best way to make God real to someone is to tell them your story. Tell them how God entered your life and made a difference in who you are and how you live your life. For the church to proclaim in all things that we do the power and the grace of the living God. I want you to ask yourself one simple question. How many of your friends and acquaintances actually know that you belong to a church? How many of them know that you are a Christ follower? The third thing they said was legitimate, legitimate doubt was prohibited. Their experiences with churches that legitimate doubt had been prohibited. Now I've had the privilege over the last few weeks to hear some fantastic faith statements by our confirmands here at Mount Pleasant. You folks would be very mightily impressed with what these young people have written but they reminded me of a faith statement that I heard many years ago that really moved me. It was written by a young teenage girl. Her life was really a wreck. Her father had abandoned the family when they were young. 
Her mother was a drug addict and was in jail. And their widowed grandmother was attempting to raise her and her other sister and her brother while she worked multiple jobs just to make ends meet. But this young person came to a youth group. She came faithfully. And she had written one of the most beautiful statements of faith I ever heard. It was beautiful to me because she doubted. She wasn't taking everything that was preached and taught for granted. She was using the mind that God had given her to poke holes and to fill gaps and to ask questions. It gave me great comfort that this troubled young girl felt safe enough to ask these questions, not only to her peers and youth group, but to the whole congregation, and she felt safe doing it. Dr. Bynum shared with the session recently a post by Jan Edmonston, a past moderator of the PCUSA. In her writing, she said this about the church. True happiness comes when we are the people God created us to be. Not greedy or grabby or judgy. It's so much more than a fake smile and a cursory handshake during the passing of the peace. There is deep joy when we take care of each other and love each other. When people we barely know are praying with and for us. When they visit us and bring us dinner when they hold us while we weep, and when they sit with us when we fail. This surely makes life a little bit better. Imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create a sanctuary. As a faith community, we must embrace the questions and the doubts because it is the only way that we will find the truth. Number four, they said those that did, that did attend church said they didn't learn anything about God. I think this obviously relates to the second question, but if we ourselves don't know about God, then how in the world are we going to tell people about God? Now, I know not all of us are gifted orators or extroverts like me, but we can all practice our stories. I know, it's a curse. Um, but we can all practice those stories that we have, our faith stories, and share them with, our stranger, with strangers and even our family members. I call that carrying your story in your back pocket. Have it ready. Be prepared. God will place someone in your life that needs to hear that story. One of the things that I've taught our mission teams is to practice their faith story while they're on their mission trip. So when they get back, they can share that. When people ask them, how was your trip? Tell them your story. Tell them your faith journey as it related to that trip. People want to hear that story. You need to tell it. Write it down and practice it and have it ready. Number five, those surveys said that they are having a hard time finding community. Now that one should hit us pretty hard if there's anything the local church should be able to do and be an expert in, it should be in community building. But unfortunately, many times we divide up into our own personal clique groups and we ignore the stranger in our midst. It happens to the best of us. You can imagine and you can make an legitimate argument that one of the reasons behind the explosive growth of the first century church was because the way they loved each other and the world. Love should be a defining characteristic of the local church. If we love the way Jesus loved, 
without judgment or condemnation, then people would be lined out our door. Now, my friends, please take these five statements as opportunities for living the resurrected life. They are not criticisms. We as a church and as individuals don't fail at all five, and we don't hit home runs at all five either. But we can continue to be better people, better Christians, and a better church, because that is what Christ has called us to do. Our call is to make the body of Christ real and present in the world on Easter Sunday and on Low Sunday alike, on our best day and on our worst day. God is glorified, not just for ourselves, but for the broken and sinful world to know that not only we love them, but so does the risen Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.